0: Hello, friends, welcome, as always delighted that you're joining me. My guest today has written an absolutely beautiful book that I found so moving. I told him that I was tearing up in the first few pages, and I just cannot wait to share this conversation with Esau Macaulay. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon. And here's where it gets interesting. I am really excited to be chatting with Esau today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: I read your book. I was very moved by it. I thought to myself as I was reading it, like, this man is a fantastic writer. And it took the story of your family, who I don't know anything about them, and I just really wanted to find out what happened. I was emotionally invested in the outcome of your family's story. And I just really, really enjoyed it. I think it took me like just a couple hours to read the whole thing. Like that's how compelling I found it. So congrats on an amazing job, Wilda. Well oh,
1: thank you. It's an honor to have anybody read my family story and to think that someone who never met me might be interested in my cousins and aunties and uncles and my grandparents and great-grandparents and all those other people that you meet in the story. I love them. Like they are people who are really important to me and they made me into the person that I am. And so I wanted people to see them. And by seeing them, see the South. And by seeing the South, see black people in America. And so the whole goal of the book is the people who you don't think are important have lives that are are significant and they shouldn't be tossed to the side. Mm,
0: I love that. Do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about like if my ancestors could see me now? You know, like the people from 200 years ago, 150 years ago of like, look at him, college professor, New York Times writer, writing books, being interviewed on all kinds of shows in the podcast. Like if they could see me now, think of how proud they are of you in this moment.
1: There is a moment in the book where I talk about the land that my great grandmother had and then she lost it. and. I've considered going back to buy it, to kind of close that circle. And I don't know if I think about people being proud of me. I think about being responsible. In other words, I don't see myself as the climax of their story. I see myself as a chapter in their story. And that it's my job to not actually make the story simply about me and what I accomplished, but about the lives that preceded mine. Because... You all know about me because apparently I put words together pretty well and you care about them. But I want to use that not to say turn the attention towards me, but turn the attention towards my ancestors who came before me. And like the struggle, in other words, there is a beauty that exists in life. And sometimes it takes literary forms for people to be able to see. And so what you all see in my words, the reader sees in my words, I saw in actual lives. And so I've succeeded if my parents and grandparents look at the book and say, that is us. And so the real goal was to say, these stories matter. There's one story. I'll talk about the land again. My great-grandmother worked on a tenant farm. And it's amazing for me to even think about this. great-grandmother who I knew worked on an actual tenant farm, saved up, worked extra jobs, cleaned houses, did all of these things in the 1920s and 30s during Jim Crow, saved up enough money to buy her own plot of land. But because she was illiterate, that land was initially stolen from her because she kind of signed this tricky deed. And she lost that land. But that moment, that struggle that she had of working the land and finding her way and fighting an illiterate black woman buys a piece of property. That is a magnificent accomplishment. And I want people to see that accomplishment. And that accomplishment is just as important in its own way as what I did as New York Times as a university professor. And those stories aren't separate. That what she instilled in our family generations ago is being fruit in me and and my children and, and my siblings.
0: That's right. And you talk about how important education was to your mother and how she was at the school all the time. And there's a whole story about your mom I won't give away, but she does get a brain tumor and undergoes a lot of physical hardship, but also a lot of other types of hardship. And I love ruminating on this idea that who we are today is no accident, and it is the result of our ancestors' progress made on our behalf.
1: Yes, that's it. I guess one of the things I was struggling with, and I'm glad that you said the nice things about me, university professor, New York Times writer, all of those things. There's a temptation when you have that background. You grew up in poverty- You overcome these things and you make it to what society considers success. And you make the story about you, how brave you were, and how you overcame these traumas because you were special. And what I really wanted to remind people of is that it wasn't just me who was special, it was my family. And it was like, my mother. How does a single Black mother in the 80s and the 90s making like less than $22,000 a year? And still in her children, this idea that becomes almost this unshakable confidence that I can go to college to become whatever it is that I want to be. Like, how does she do that? And to me, trying to get at that alchemy is important because that's really what the story is. It was how does she see something for her children that she never had herself? And how, how am I responsible to tell that story now that I'm there? Because if I tell it in a way that, only I'm exceptional well then how does that help some kid who's trying to make it who was in a similar situation than I was it has to be something that's broader than just unique individuals a lot can happen in the next 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, America is a place that by and large, we highly value this bootstrapping story, the underdog story of look at Esau His mother was disabled. She was by and large a single woman. He lived in poverty. His great-grandmother was a sharecropper. Look at what he's overcome and look at where he is today. And that is not at all to diminish your accomplishments, which are significant. There's no shade on anything you have accomplished. But I do think that that is a very uniquely American perspective of like, he did it alone. He did it. He and I love that this book is more than just, look at what I did. It is the sum total of everyone that came before.
1: Because what is actually required, and I don't want to say anything negative about like any book or any narrative of overcoming, because those narratives are true, and I don't want to diminish what those people accomplish. But one of the things that I noticed is I sat down to write this story, and I began to think about memoirs that sort are of like this, and what do they actually do to the reader? And there's a sense in which the outcome is predetermined because you know that the hero lives because the hero is writing the memoir. And so what is required of the reader in that context? Well, you just have to cheer on the protagonist and you know, oh, how are they going to overcome this? And especially in a black narrative, your job is to kind of boo the racist and cheer the black protagonist on. And then if the person gets through it, there's this assumption that, okay, America puts black people through it, but it's survivable. And so it leaves the system intact. And the idea, because we just need more exceptional Black people to get justice and equality. And I wanted to say, no, no, no. Why do we require that kind of exceptionalism from Black people? And this is no shade. I love my university. But i never forget when I first got to college, I thought everybody had crawled through the mud like I did. And I didn't know about legacy admissions, and there were people in college who got like C's in high school and their parents had enough money to just pay for a tuition and they were just at college having a good time. And I was like, hold on, this is everything to me. This is my entire family's future. I'm the first one in my generation to go, I have to succeed. And they're just at the fraternity house getting drunk because no matter what happens, they have a job with mom and dad in the business after it's over. And I was like, hold on. Why can't you have ordinary black people like that? who kind of meander around during their teen years and then find themselves. We had to like walk this razor's edge to just get through high school and go to college. And other people who got to college because it's just what they did next. And so I began to redefine my definition of justice. And for me, justice was ordinary black people being able to flourish. Ordinary black children having the opportunity and time to find themselves so that you don't have to have this heroic focus from the age of like 12 to escape where you came from and get to college. And so I did want to question why exceptionalism is the norm for what we think about escaping poverty. It should be more reasonable or easier. We ought to create a society which is more paths towards success and flourishing.
0: Yeah, because really when you're asking the question... Why can't just ordinary black people just be like, I got C's in school and you know what? I ended up in college and I turned out okay. And it ended up being fine, which is the privilege that is afforded to mediocre white people every day. (laughs) Like why, (laughs) why, (laughs) why, why must everybody be exceptional? Why is no one allowed to just be like, yeah, I'm finding myself.
1: One of the things that I tried to do in the form of a narrative in the book is to talk about education in particular. So one of the biggest predictors of whether or not you're going to get a college degree is the education and financial background of your parents. Every single study shows this, right? Like this is just facts one-on-one. So if then you put my grandfather through Jim Crow and you literally made it impossible for him to go to college, the society made it less likely that my mom was going to go to college. And my mom literally the first generation of people in my family who were post-segregation, she started in first grade in integrated schools, the first generation to go through integrated schools. I'm the first child of a member of my family who had access to equal education. We're not actually going to talk about the actual racialization of her integrated school, right? Whether or not those schools, they were integrated, they were a previously opposed to segregation, actually treated my mom like a person who could think and learn. And so if this is the case, that America... I'm generation one of integrated school children. That is an, a financial and economic injustice that was done to my family whose legacy isn't open with. And so, yes, I overcame that reality and I went to college. But for all of the people who are my age who didn't do that, is it not true that America bears some responsibility? I know we're just like on the other end of the affirmative action laws. But this idea that you, you have one generation and everything is over, seems to me to boggle the mind, especially when you arrive on campus and you say, if it was illegal for my grandparents to go to the school, then I literally could not have been a legacy admission. Like I, It was impossible. And so the economic privilege of having time to find yourself is something that is often denied to significant portions. There's another story that I think about a lot that's in the book about my grandfather, Theodore, who worked in the cotton fields. He worked in the cotton fields for this family. And he started from the age of four all the way up through his teen years. And during the high seasons, they would pull the black kids out of school to go and finish picking the cotton. And he didn't get paid a fair wage and all of those things. And he said he got like two pair of overalls and some used books for his clothes. But all of the money that he got from his labor went to a white family that also had children his age who were then going to school. So there's generational wealth that exists in one family due to my grandfather's labor. And once again, those two families kind of made their way through the South. And went with my grandfather's resources and my grandfather's literally labor, funding their education. And so I just I just think that, I just want black people to have space. And I know that every single black person didn't grow up in poverty and that everyone didn't experience what I experienced, but it was a common enough experience with redlining and other things for us to really think about what does it take for a black person in America to make it to the promised land.
0: And the idea that, you know, a lot of people give examples of things like segregation or they give examples of things like redlining as evidence of this sort of like system of oppression or a system of racism. Almost nobody ever talks about how the average Black school child in the early to mid-20th century only went to school for three to four months a year while their white counterparts were going to school for nine months. And that is, it speaks exactly to what you're saying, that your ancestors were pulled out of school to work while everybody else kept going to school.
1: It's one thing to hear these narratives about tenant farming. It's another thing for your grandfather to tell you these stories about tenant farming. And so my grandfather was a good student. He ends up starting his own business and does, he does things later on. But he gets to eighth grade. I think it's eighth grade or ninth grade. And he's like 16 years old. Not because he ever did poorly in school, but because he lost so much time to work in the farm that he was 16. And he said, I'm going to be 20 by the time I graduate. And he didn't have any money, and so he was working at the Coca Cola plant for like forty five cents a day. And he has to quit school and join the military so that he can get an education, because working on the tenant farm took away his childhood. So instead of being you know an eighth grader who's twelve years old, he's a grown man through no fault of his own. And so he has to find another path towards education and success. And yes, he does it. He does it, but that's not justice. And that's what I wanted people to see in the narrative is that these things that we read about the statistics are real people. I hope I'm not repeating myself. It's one thing to read. They made African-American tenant farmers during the 1920s, 30s and 40s. It's another thing for my grandfather to say I was four years old. And I got up and I had to pick cotton from that age and the people who raised him, at the end of every year, would like tally up with the guy who owned the land. And no matter what they farmed, he always said, It looks like he just broke even. Year after year after year after year. And the only reason they ever got out of the tenant farm, they never made enough money doing that. My grandfather, his caregivers, worked late at nights cleaning homes and doing side jobs to save up enough money to eventually pay for a place in the city where he then goes to the city and his granddad ends up digging ditches for the city. And, but that digging ditches actually for the city gave him a steady check. And that's what allowed us to have a little bit more stability.
0: We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast. And I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio mode, you can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash sharon that's 15 percent off at masterclass.com slash sharon masterclass.com slash sharon we have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right and if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes stinky feet and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house and then when people come over they're like um Your house smells weird. There's a solution for that, and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems. When in reality, you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code SHARON. betterhelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Sharon. I bet you've heard this phrase a few million times in your life. And I wonder what your response to it is, which is stop making everything about race. Yeah. <laughs> Have you heard that before? Has anyone <laughs> yeah. ever mentioned
1: that? <laughs> yeah. And so it's funny. It's like the answer to the question is I get told this all of the time. And the truth is when America stops making it about race, I can stop making it about race. And what I do actually in the narrative, this, which is really interesting, is that it's not about race. The whole book isn't about here are all of the horrible things that were done to black people. But you can't tell an authentic story without talking about race in America. And so they are saying stop making everything about race. What they really mean is completely eliminate race from the discourse. And I don't think you can tell a true account of an American family in the South going from the 1900s up through the 2000s and not mention race. One of the hard things to do as a writer is to acknowledge that poor people can be mean too, right? That, yes, we are victims of racism and injustice, but we're not just victims. We're also moral agents who make our own decisions and actions. And so part of the book does examine what happens in society at the societal level, but there's also the, the decisions that we make as individuals. And so you're right, the entire story of the Black experience in America is not Black resistance to racism. That's a key component of it, but there's also the actions, the decisions that individual Black people make about their future. And so what I tried to do was tell a story that included both of those things. It's not completely about race, but race is not absent. And so I guess I wish that I could live in a world where racism doesn't come up as often as it does.
0: When somebody says stop making everything about race, very often it's because in their own lives, things have never had to be about race. And so they have the Privilege of having the perspective of like, we don't need to talk about this because it doesn't impact me. And I feel uncomfortable with the fact that you continue to talk about it. That's really like what's underneath that.
1: And I think it's easy to isolate incidences when you don't experience them. In other words, there's not a set number of racial incidents that can occur. And then people will say racism is a problem in America. If something happens, there's a portion of the population that is committed to seeing it as not a racial issue. And if it is a racial issue, then it's an isolated incident. And so we keep these incidents disconnected because they serve political and emotional purposes. Because if these incidents are connected, then you got to ask the question, well, what kind of society creates these things? And so I'm pulled over by the police officer and the police officer calls me boy and does all of these things. I'm sorry that happened to you. Maybe there's another explanation. It happens again and again and again. There's a point in the book where I hope it's not redundant, but I tell like four or five of those stories in a row precisely so that people can understand. It's not that there's one thing that happens to African Americans and then we find that we believe there's racism in the world. It's just that racism follows us around. I really wanted to write a story so that people can see what this actually looks like in the lives of individuals. Because I wanted them to... Feel what I feel. So, yes, I went to college and I learned a sophisticated analysis of race and politics in America. But before I went to college and got all of the resources used to analyze race and injustice in America, I was actually a young black kid growing up in Huntsville, Alabama, with people who were all around me. In other words, when you you think about the civil rights movement, most of the civil rights movement people who, who actually marched in the streets, They didn't read tons of works of philosophy. They were just black people who were tired of being stepped on. And there is something that comes from living the thing itself in the South that gives you a disposition, an unshakable confidence. It doesn't have to be this way. So I'm not trying to convince people in the sense that there's a hypothesis that I'm trying to test. I'm saying I swam through the water. Of anti-black racism in the South. And it's a fact. It's just as real, Sharon, as me and you sitting here. I know it's there because it was in my actual life, in my actual family. And it's and its legacy is still there. And so I wanted people to see humans, not just arguments.
0: Mm, I love that. I love that. I think you do that well in this book. This is not an argument of like, racism still exists, period. Here are four ways I've experienced it this week, period. You know, like, we. oh, I've lost count of how many racial incidents there have been in the following week. Like, (laughs) that's not what this book is. It's a beautifully written story of your family and family. Using your family as the vehicle, you are able to talk about many of these issues that we're discussing today. And I think it's a really beautiful way of, of humanizing the story and helping other people who are maybe, maybe they've experienced it and can experience solidarity when reading it, or maybe they are outside of it entirely. They grow up next to Canada, like the whitest of white person possible. And they're like, well, I just didn't know. Like it can benefit so many different people from reading your book.
1: But here's the other thing, and and I don't want to belabor this, why do you make everything about race issue? That's actually an insecurity that attaches to Black people. What I mean by that is I wish that I had the luxury to be able to just ask questions. So if I apply for a job and I don't get the job or someone's following me around a store or someone says something that's just awkward and I'm I'm always stuck asking the question, is this about race or is just a normal awkward human interaction? Am I failing because of the decisions that I made? One of the things that's really odd is that I became a writer and people know me for my writing. But no one said to me growing up, you know, very few people said to me you should be a writer. No one like kind of saw in me this gift that I had. And I wonder why was I not often put forward as a writer was it because they just assumed that a black person couldn't be a writer? For the most part people just tossed me aside. I remember I had a teacher who said to me when I was in high school. I was a football player. He said you're not tall enough to get a scholarship playing football and you're not smart enough to get an academic scholarship. You're probably going to end up dead and in jail.
0: Oh nice. That's good. And
1: like that was that was he told I was told that in high school. And like the petty part of me wants to send him an email. I'm trying to be more mature. <laughs> But like, that's the kind of story that you're told over and over again, rather than this story that you could be whatever you want to be.
0: Yeah, right. His default assumption was, well, I see that you're not quote unquote good enough to be a pro athlete. So you're probably going to go to jail because the default assumption was a young black man. He's an athlete or he's in prison. That was his default assumption. And you even mentioned this in your book too, that you know, like everybody in my family is either a preacher or on the streets. Yeah. And that this idea that like, I'm going to get a PhD, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a professor. Like this was your first of your family in terms of like choosing a different type of experience, different type of profession.
1: I had to put this footnote in here. My sister's the first one to graduate from college, not me. She's two years older. My sister is the first one in our family to graduate. She actually goes and she gets a medical degree. She's actually a pediatric cardiac intensivist. If you don't know what that is, neither do I. She, but, like, but she does that. She's a doctor. So she always says, I'm the second. So I always got to make sure. So I always yeah. have to say, we are the first ones. <laughs> and it was. There was this idea that you basically, you were an entertainer. It was music, right? But I had there was no singing. God didn't give me that opportunity. So there was going to be no singing and <laughs> rapping. I'm the defeat of every Black stereotype. About being able to dance and sing because I couldn't catch a beat if he was laying there. I just can't like I clap and it's like where did the beat go? Anyway, so why are you clapping music.
0: on the two and the yeah, three? Yeah, the two, the
1: three, the four. Yeah, like what are you, what are you, what are you doing? I was like, sorry, there's if you go, if you go, sorry, this would be a super, super niche thing. But if anybody ever goes to a black church, there's the two and the four, which I could kind of do. I can do it. But then there's like a double tap that they do Were you doing like the double tap on a beat. I was like, okay, when I'm doing a double tap on a certain, like I'm going to do it at the wave or something. I don't know. So the idea, though, is that we're either going to be athletes, musicians, or preachers. And that, that, was, that was my perception of what was possible because that's, that's what you can see. And it's hard It's hard to dream of something that you can't see. I didn't know any lawyers or doctors, definitely not writers. There just wasn't a category for being a writer when I was growing up. This sounds crazy. Looking back on it, I had a friend who should remain nameless. We were seniors in high school and then our freshman year in college. We got really into the Harlem Renaissance and the poetry of the Harlem Renaissance. And we were writing Black, like, liberation poems and sending them back and forth to each other because we didn't know what else to do with it. So we had this passion within us, but nobody ever told us where to put it. There wasn't an outlet until one day the New York Times called and said, Esau, do you want to do it? And I said, sure. And I shot my shot and I've been writing ever since.
0: So it wasn't until somebody else saw the potential in you that you embraced the potential for yourself. Is that what you're saying?
1: I had to update my bio because people kept calling me a writer. And so, yeah, the story is there's a person who used in the New York Times reached out to me and said, I've seen some of your writing in smaller publications. Would you be interested in writing an opinion piece for us about reparations? And actually, at the time, I didn't feel comfortable. I had a friend of mine named McKimini Uwan, an African-American woman who knew a lot about reparations. And I said, oh, I can call it McKimini and she could tell me what to write then i said hold on i can't steal from black women and so <laughs> i told the new york times no i can't you should call my friend kimony she might be able to help you out but they said oh you said no i said yeah they said but you know can we reach back out i said yeah we'll reach back out and so a few months later i wrote a piece that did well and then they reached out to me again right around the time of the pandemic and i wrote a piece about the pandemic right at the beginning and then that summer was george floyd i'm in arborry and Breonna Taylor. And I I wrote about a lot of those incidents. And they just said, would you be a contributing opinion writer? And before that, I never called myself a writer. I just said, I'm a professor. I'm an academic. And then it was my agent who comes to me and List says, I think you should write a memoir. I think you have an interesting story. I said, nobody's going to like my story. She said, just write it and see what people think. And so it has been for the most part, other people who have recognized that in me and encouraged me to do it.
0: I think it's a, a testament Of course you are talented and other people recognized your talent, but I also think it's a testament to this idea that the words we speak have power and the words that we speak to other people about themselves have power. And that the idea that you had to make a choice to ignore that coach who was like, you're going to be in jail because you're not good enough to do these other things. And it took somebody else speaking that truth to you, that you are a writer people want to read. You should be, you deserve this position as an opinion writer, as a memoirist, as an author, before you could embrace that identity for yourself. And I think it's there's a lot of ways that that idea can manifest itself in in the lives of people that we know.
1: I will always love teachers. I had a teacher named Mrs. Bailey, and I I wrote a whole article about this. So people can Google it if they want to. But I was, I think I was a junior in high school, and there was an AP class, AP U.S. History. And she said, you should take it. And I didn't want to take it. And she convinced me to take it. And she said, you should take the AP test. And I said, well, I can't afford it. You know, she said, I'll find a way to get the funding for you to take the test. We're an inner city struggling school. We'd have these lunch study sessions and we'd have these morning study sessions where we'd get together. We'd study for the test. So we took the test. i never forget this. one of these moments that stick out. Changed my life. And like the day that the test scores came back, she had them. And, she, and I don't know if she put them in the envelopes, but in my brain there's an envelope. And she comes up to me and she says to me, you got a four. You have college credit as a junior in high school. You can be whatever you want to be. And my mama told me that a thousand times. But well, there was something about the way that she said it on that day that kind of washed away the, thing that the person that told me my freshman year that I wasn't going to be anything. And so I'll always say that the teacher who goes into difficult places and instills hope in students, they're worth, you, you couldn't measure it in gold. And I published that story in the New York Times And she sees it, kind of reunited. And all of the other students who she'd helped throughout the years started sharing this piece because it it talks about the difference she made in their lives. And so I will always have a deep and abiding love for educators who take the time to see the people who everybody else pushes to the side and encourages them that they can be more than they think they can be.
0: I love that. I love that story. And I bet it was probably the pinnacle of a very long career for her to read about her efforts in the New York Times.
1: It, it was funny because she, she's a Brown graduate and she always went She went to Brown University and she wanted me to go to Brown and I didn't go to Brown. And I said to her, this is my apology. I'm sorry I didn't go to Brown University, but here's <laughs> your New York Times article. I failed you in that regard, but hopefully this makes <laughs> up for you. It was a bit of a flex, right? To- Uh (laughs) It was a bit of a flex to say, I'm sorry, here's my apology in the New York Times.
0: Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. o-n-e-s-k-i-n dot c-o try one skin and enjoy younger healthier skin without all the extra steps that's one dot code sharon
1: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time For free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Who do you think this book is for? How far to the promised land? Who is this book for?
1: I think, first of all, it's for like little Black boys and little Black girls who are trying to find their way in the world, and are looking for some source of hope and guidance. One of the things that you can do is a child has an imagination and a well-written book can transcend any cultural boundaries and it can stick with you. I remember reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and just loving it. And there's tons of books that are just like different from me that, that I love. But there's also something when you read the book and you see yourself. And so I wanted to write a book that helped little black boys and little black girls see themselves in the narrative. The other thing that I wanted to do, though, and this may seem like a contradiction, but it's related to what I said. A truly good book touches everyone, even for whom their experiences aren't universal. And there are so many books that are kind of seen as the quintessential American story that has kind of a white protagonist. And I said, I wanted to make an American story that had a black family at the center of it. So it's a story about America, about what it means to try to survive in America, that is not just for black families, but it's for everyone. And so I think that I wanted to write something that was specific enough to feel authentic to Southern Black boys and girls, but universal enough to speak to the human because black people are humans, right? We're not a different genre of being. And so the black struggle for meaning and purpose is separated from the human struggle for meaning and purpose. And so I think that it is also a book that's gonna help people ask the same kinds of questions that I had to ask. How does my family and my history make me and shape me into who I am? And so I wanted to write a particular book that was because it was particular and well done. It's also universal because I wanted I wanted a universal black book and it's arrogant to say it that way. But you wanted to write something and this may seem nerdy and I, and I would have never had a chance to say this or, or a chance to admit this when I was younger. I just want to write something beautiful in a world that is so dark and broken. Sometimes you just want to you want to add beauty to it, but the beauty can't be a lie. It can't be a beauty that doesn't have any pain in it because that's not true. So I wanted to write something that's both painful, true, and beautiful. That was some of my goals.
0: Mm, I love that. I think you achieved it. I, I think it was all of those things.
1: Sharon, you should just like, you, you should be a writing coach. Like I've never been more encouraged by having, <laughs> like I feel <laughs> like I can, I can conquer the world. You should just do affirmations. I would like on TikTok <laughs> and I would just like reel that thing and you just, just rake <laughs> in the money. I feel so I feel so encouraged right now. I'm going to go write another book.
0: Please do. Please do it. I'll read it and I'll say the same things about it. I have a book coming out next year. It's not a memoir, but I can understand like the anxiety surrounding it where you're like, dear God, you better like it.
1: I'm sure it'll be amazing. You should just put all of the stuff you said about my book and just like, edit out Esau and put Sharon in it and then it'll be great. <laughs>
0: I'll send you one. I'll send you one. Yeah, when s- it comes out. Send me out, a copy of it. I will. And we'll
1: talk about it. If i be back on the podcast, we'll talk about your book and I'll tell you how amazing it is.
0: Oh, that's very, well, that's very kind. Today I have Esau with me who's going to tell me everything he liked about my new book. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not weird. No, it's
1: completely normal.
0: Or self-important. <laughs> no, no, it's completely normal.
1: Completely normal.
0: Well, I absolutely loved reading your book. You you really, and I, I'm not saying this, like we talked about this earlier, like we don't, we've never met each other. I don't have any vested interest in like blowing smoke in your ear. Like I legitimately thought it was a beautifully written book and I it was very moving and I loved it.
1: I appreciate Thank that.
0: Thanks for being here today. That's
1: very kind of you.
0: You can buy Esau Macaulay's book, How Far to the Promised Land, wherever you buy your books. It comes out on September 12th, 2023. The show is hosted and executive produced by me, Sharon McMahon, our audio producer is Jenny Snyder. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you could leave us a review or share this episode on social media, those things help podcasters out so much. Thanks for being here today.